Um, as we dive in, um, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. Um, you can get, again, your notes off the Destiny app, or you can go to destinyokc.com backslash live notes, and you can have some notes there. But before we dive into that, um, you know, pastoring for over 15 years, I was actually quite shocked. It took me about eight to nine years to realize that days like today, Father's Day, Mother's Day, that it elicits a vast multiplicity of experiences from people. That there's just different kinds of experiences in the room. In Romans 12, 15, Paul tells us as the church to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. I just want you to hear that. He doesn't say, hey, come alongside those who are weeping and be the solution to their mourning. He doesn't say mourning is something to solve. Let's get in there and solve it. We have the joy of the Lord. No, part of our role with each other in the community of saints is to step into rejoice with those who rejoice and to step into weeping with those who weep. Believing that God is in both of those experiences. And so on Father's Day, I just want to acknowledge that some people have had different experiences in the room. So I'm going to take some liberty this morning and and I just want to name some of those. Um, In the psychology, there's a term called you name it to tame it. In other words, you name your feelings and emotions and it helps tame them a bit if you can name them. I don't know if I'm going to do all of that. I've promised a lot all of a sudden, I realize. But what I want to do is just uh, validate the wide variety of experiences. So for those here who became a father for the first time this year, or maybe again this year, we want to pause and we just celebrate with you. We're thankful that you've had that experience. For those who became a new father through adoption, We thank you for bearing witness to the Father heart of God, and we want to come alongside and support you. To those single dads and single moms who are here watching online that have to play both roles, we applaud you for your courage and selflessness. And we say, way to go. We want to come alongside and pray and encourage you. To those like Paul and Barnabas, who are spiritual dads, foster dads, or mentor dads, we need you. To those like Adam, Adam and Eve, to those like Adam, who have a disappointed heartache and distance with your children, we weep with you. For those who live through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall test of fatherhood, we're better for having you in our midst. For those in the trenches with little ones every day, we appreciate you. For those who lost a father this year, we grieve with you. For those fathers who have ever lost a child, we mourn with you. For those who've experienced abuse at the hands of your own father, We acknowledge your experience, and we commit to walk with you on your journey of healing and wholeness. To those men in the room and women in the room who have walked the hard path of infertility, trying to have a child but can't seem to do it, and it's painful to believe, we believe with you for a miracle. 
for those who will be empty nesters this year or have an emptier nest this upcoming year, we both grieve and rejoice with you. <laughs> uh, there we go. To those like Moses, or to those like Moses' father and mother, who reluctantly gave up their child because it wasn't safe for them to raise the child, we commend you for your selflessness, and we remember that you hold that child in your heart. For the young men in the room who aren't married, who hope one day to be a father, we hope with you. And we pray that you will grow in wisdom and character so that you can more clearly display the father heart of God to your future children. To those who have warm relationships with your children and you've sowed seeds of eternity into their lives, we rejoice with you. We just pause for a moment and acknowledge the vast experience that this brings, that parenting is not for the faint of heart. And we thank you and we remember you. I'd like to... frame something for you this morning and uh, work the remainder of the time to, to do this. will not be a typical sermon, uh, one of my typical sermons at least. I, I want to help us see kind of an overarching narrative. I want us to see that the Bible has a story that it's telling and, uh, and why that's important. So my text for this morning will be the entire Bible. Um, we're going to start at Genesis 3 though instead of 1. Uh, we'll be out sometime Thursday. Don't laugh, I'm a slow reader. I'm just joking. So if you have your Bibles, I am going to read three passages in a row that are quite lengthy, if you'll just bear with me. I want to get them all out and read, and then we'll walk through and come back to them. We're going to start with Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. When they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard, the sound, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, an interesting question from God, who told you you were naked? Maybe another way of saying it is, Adam, where did you receive this information? Because it didn't come from me. Have you eaten of the tree in which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me, don't you love that? <laughs> what me, it was her. Uh, the woman that you gave, uh, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now we're going to turn to John chapter 14 to the New Testament, and I'm going to read 15 through 21. John 14, verses 15 through 21. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 18, just Note this verse, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And in that day that you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me, 
and I in, in you. We're going to turn now to Galatians chapter 3. One more passage. Thank you for being patient. And we're going to dive into Galatians chapter 3. Always hides out from me back here. We're going to start at verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. He goes on to say, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, as long as he stays immature, is no different than a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set forth by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, we just pause for a moment at the reading of your word, and we acknowledge this, the sacredness of your word. And we ask, Lord, for um, your Holy Spirit to come and give us wisdom and revelation to see what it is that you would desire us to see. Lord, I pause and I take a moment to pray for our children and Destiny Kids and Destiny Kids Junior and all the workers. I pray, Lord, that you would give our kids, our children, our heart to know you and to walk in your ways. God, that you would put in their heart a desire to gaze upon your beauty all the days of their life. May you bless those who work with them. And Lord, I pray in here, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. And I thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. This idea of narrative, story, is really important. In philosophical terms, it's called a meta-narrative. It's an overarching narrative, one that connects dots. And the reason why this is important is that we all live with a story we tell ourselves to help us understand the world we find ourselves in. And so the narrative, this overarching narrative, this meta-narrative that you believe about the world is helping you determine how to act how to behave, how to interpret things, what it is you ought to desire even. It's informing you subconsciously at levels you've never imagined. And we all have these stories. What we need is a truthful story. Now what's interesting, and particularly about Christians, or really more specifically the church, is the church is the only community that exists who has committed themselves to living according to the narrative of the scriptures. The only community. That what we find in scriptures is a narrative that informs us on what the world is like and what's going on, what kind of story we're a part of, and how to interact and live in that story. And so it's important because what can happen sometimes is you can even take elements of the story that are truthful, but you can tell the story in such a way that it's no longer truthful. You can take subplots and mistake them for the main plot, which misrepresents the whole story. You can, uh, you can get so focused on aspects of the story that you miss the point of the whole story or even come to a conclusion that is completely contrary to the point of the story. Let me give you some examples. I want to just list a couple of movies 
that tell stories, and I'm going to try to sum them up in, in ways, and you tell me, though they may be truthful, does it represent the story itself? Take the story of Thor. Any Avenger fans in the room? All right. Yeah, okay, great. Some of the ladies are just hewing because it was Thor. Like, I hadn't seen the movie. I'm there. <laughs> uh, to be honest, maybe. No, never mind. Thor. Um, somebody says, what's the story of Thor about? What if I was to say, it's really about adopted kid's older brother who won't let him hold the hammer. Is it truthful? Kind of. Is it the point? No. What about the Twilight Saga? What is it about? Well, it's about an 18-year-old girl who falls in love with a 100-year-old man and a dog. <laughs> Doesn't quite sum it up, does it? What about Shrek? The story of Shrek. It's about a guy who learns to love a girl without all her Instagram filters and makeup. <laughs> what about The Shining? You might remember Jack Nicholson's The Shining. A family's first Air and B experience goes bad. What about Lord of the Rings? A group takes nine hours to return some jewelry. <laughs> what about Ratatouille? Anybody remember the Disney movie Ratatouille? One of my kids' favorite. Oh, yeah. Basically, it's, it's two hours of why we need health codes. <laughs> Chronicles of Narnia. It's a story about why guests shouldn't play with other people's furniture. <laughs> Phantom of the Opera. French terrorist in search of plastic surgery. <laughs> the movie Inception, the dreams within a dream, right? It's just a long story about good naps. <laughs> well, what about Batman versus Superman? Paranoid billionaire afraid of alien immigrant. <laughs> so, yeah. My point is... It's comical when it's with a movie. It's catastrophic when it's with the Bible. We hear things all the time. The Bible's just a bunch of rules. You've missed the whole point. The Bible's about going to heaven when you die. You took a benefit and made it a plot. The Bible is about sin management. No, you've missed the point. The Bible's about learning to be a really good moral person. You're still not getting it. The Bible is about Israel and their Messiah. That's true. But you fail to see that Israel's Messiah was for the whole world. You see, listen, we can, it's important that we have not only the truthful story of the scriptures, but that we emphasize the correct places and things about the story so that it can inform our lives. The scriptures contain God's self-revelation. God is revealing to us his purposes for history, humanity, and the earth, and all that's in it, and we can't afford to get it wrong. We can expect the world, who, people who aren't Christians, to get it wrong. But we, as Christians, we, as the church, have to be people who at least get the major themes of the narrative accurate. So the scriptures may use many different metaphors to communicate this narrative, However, as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ is the most fullest and clearest revelation of God's who God is and his purposes in the earth. The main revelation of God that Jesus brought to us and that he both preached and embodied was one that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is your father. 
You take every revelation of God in the Old Testament, and though you can see hints of, of him, God being a father, it was only really Jesus who came and made it clear that God desires to reveal himself to his people as a father to his children. So what I want to do is I want to give you a little overarching story. God created the world with the specific intent of making sons and daughters who would be his image bearers in the earth. He said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let us give him dominion. Adam, the first human being, was called a son of God. In Luke 3, verse 38, it says, given the genealogy of Jesus, Enosh was the son of Seth, Seth was the son of Adam, Adam the son of God. God created humanity with the specific intent to be his children. The word son in Hebrew means uh, out of another. It means to come out of another person. So it's important that we get uh, the, creative, the creation narrative right. When God piled the dirt together, it wasn't the pile of dirt that was made in the image of God. It is when God brought, the Bible says God breathed onto the pile of dirt that Adam became a living being. Something came out of God and into man. In other words, there is a, the word spirit, ruach, uh, breath even, is what it could mean. That there's this thing that came out of God and into humanity and, and Adam became a living spirit. And this is what the Bible actually affirms in Hebrews 12. I think it's verse 9. It says this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we paid them respect. How much more shall we be in subject to the father of our spirits and live? That God is the father of our spirits. That it is after our spirits that we are made in the image and likeness of God. Now you make someone in your image and in your likeness with the intention of them representing you or putting you on display. And this is important. It's important to understand the nature of God. God being a community, a trinity, um, a community of perfect love. Love longs to be expressed. And the good creator God created a world, and then he created the apex of his creation, humanity, and he put him in the world. And it's important because God had other options. He could have chosen angels to be his sons, but he chose human beings to be his heirs. And then, in fact, some people often miss it, but Hebrews chapter 1, almost the entire argument from 1 to 14, is about why God chose humanity over angels. And in Hebrews 1.14, the theology there, the writer of Hebrew ends with all angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to those who will inherit salvation. In other words, all angels are actually ministering spirits, servants if you would. It is, the, it is humanity that God has um, chosen to be his heirs. Now listen, I didn't, I'm not, I didn't decide this, God did. So that's important to note. What does it mean though to be made in someone's image and likeness? and have dominion. Why would you do such a thing? Let's talk first about image. To be made in someone's image means that you intend for them to be an extension of your presence. When uh, in, in the, uh, ancient times when they would make a temple, the one of the last things they would do is they would set the image of the God in the temple. And it was a way of saying God's presence is here. Genesis, God makes the world and then sets his image in the middle of it as a way of saying, you will be an extension of my presence. I am here. To be made in the image of God is to be made with the specific intent to be an extension of God's presence. 
To be made in God's likeness, what does it mean? God is more than just an energy. He's not, a, he's not an energy or a, a non-personality. Um, he has personality. He has a character. So it's not just to be an extension of his presence. It's also to be like God is to be an expression of his personhood. It is to, the, to be an extension of his presence, image, likeness, to be an expression of his person. God created humanity with, humanity with the specific intent that you would not only be an extension of his presence into the earth, but you would also be an expression of his character in the earth. That when the world wanted to know what God was like, there would be some people who were his sons and daughters who could put that on display. It may be broken and imperfect, but this is kind of what God's like. Image, likeness, and then dominion. Word we don't like much, do we? Authority. Let me ask you, put it this way. What does God do for a living? He reigns. He rules. He's sovereign in the sense of final authority. And God created humanity and his sons and daughters to share in some of that family business, so to speak. And he gave them authority in the earth. Right? In Genesis, it's over birds and fish and creeping things. Right? You have authority over creeps. <laughs> All right, well, worked in my head. Um, by the time you got to think the Psalms too, you have authority and dominion over sheep and herds and all the rest. The point is God gave man dominion as a way of expressing not only his character, but one way we express his character is through how we take and use the authority that he's given us to bring order, justice, and peace, things like that. He actually invite, it tells Adam and Eve, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to put you in the garden, and I want you to tend it and to keep it. In other words, use the authority I'm giving you for the flourishing of everything around you. I'm going to give you dominion, and I want you to express my personhood in that dominion by using the authority not for yourself, but for the flourishing of those things around you. Image, likeness, and dominion. Now, uh, the story goes bad, but let me just pause for a minute and say that this is why... God gives a son. Okay, we, we quote this scripture. I know I'm struggling because this is, I'm trying to pack um, a revelation that was about 10 years long in my life into 45 minutes without getting bogged down in details, <laughs> which is, I like details. So, Isaiah 9, verse 6, we quote it every year at Christmas, but I think we miss it. Friend to us, a child is born, a son is given. A child was born, but a son was given. And the son was given because he pre-existed before he was born. A child was born, but a son was given. Why does God give a son? And the government shall be upon his shoulders. He shall carry the rule of God. He shall have a dominion. He shall carry something. Listen. This is what we don't understand. When you see in the Bible the phrase son of God or sons of God, we... We interpret that through our existential, uh, existentialism, uh, which comes out of the humanism that we live in, right? But here's the problem. The w phrase son of God had thousands of years of history before the New Testament used it. And it was used tons in Jesus' day. Every, I mean, C uh, Caesar, Nero, Pharaohs, a lot of rulers used the phrase son of God because the phrase son of God didn't just refer to some sentimental, intimate, emotional relationship I have with God. That certainly was a part of it. It would meant somebody has been given the calling and the vocation to represent represent God in the earth. It was functional and vocational, not just existential and emotional. 
To say that you are a son of God is not just describing some sort of intimate and personal interaction I ought to have with God as Father. It most certainly includes that. But it comes with a function to represent God in the earth. It comes with a vocation, not just a salvation. It comes with a calling, not just with some feelings. It comes with a destiny. So when the Bible continually reaffirms that Jesus was sent to bring many sons to glory, as the writer of Hebrews says, or John chapter 1, listen, let me put it this way. A son was lost, therefore a son was given to bring the other sons back home. C.S. Lewis said, the son of God became a son of man to make sons of men sons of God again. What, what we have, uh, Jesus came, he says it over and over again. Let me just give you, I'm just going to shoot from the hip here. Uh, John 1.12, as many as received them, he's given them the right to become the sons of God. The right, that's a grant of authority, a right to become, and it uses not just a description of intimacy, but an official title, sons of God, that has a function to it. You can find uh, coins uh, that still have a Caesar in the title son of God underneath it, prior to Jesus' day. So it, was a, it was a common phrase. So when Jesus uses, he's the son of God, it's not an attack on his divinity, he was certainly divine. What he was trying to say is, every other person who claims to represent God is a liar. I've come as the son of God to let you know what God is really like. So our calling, humanity was created with this specific intent from God and what that was lost. So think about the fall for a minute. The fall was a separation from relationship with God. Notice what happens when they sin. They, they hide from God and they clothe themselves. Now that, that may not seem like much to you, but when you are separated from the one in whom your whole identity and purpose and function in the earth was meant to represent and you're separated from him, You've lost everything. You're now a wanderer, an orphan. You now have struggling to survive. So Adam and Eve, which were called with a specific intent to be God's uh, representative, to represent God in the earth, to be made in his image and likeness and have dominion, are now only seeking their survival. You see, two preoccupations arise after the fall. Man seeks to provide for himself, and he seeks to protect himself. His life becomes wrapped up around himself. And the great divine intent of God for humanity to be his image bearers in the earth. They're now huddling around animal skins and hiding in bushes from God. That's quite a fall. And that's why, my friends, just being good or being better doesn't actually save you because the fundamental issue wasn't just being wrong. The fundamental issue was you were separated from God. And this is what Jesus came on the scene. John, uh, John 14, verse 8. We, everybody quotes this at a funeral, but think about what it says. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father. No one, he doesn't say no one gets to heaven. No one gets out forgiveness. You can't get forgiveness unless you come through me. That is true. But the point is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Because listen, if you just take a bunch of orphans out of the earth and put them in heaven, they're going to ruin heaven eventually. The goal is not that you need to escape something when you died. The goal is you've been separated from your Father. You don't know who you are. 
And the only way for you to be saved is to be reconciled back to God and then to learn from him how to be like him. For all those who have faith in Jesus Christ, you're now sons of God. It says, Romans 8, 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Over and over again. Revelations 21, verse 7, those who overcome will be called the sons of God. The Bible is filled with this narrative. Man, I don't even know where I'm, all right, cool. We're coming back to the Father, the point. So let me just, uh, get, that was my introduction. Uh, now, I'm just joking. So now you see, it's important that once we're reconciled to God, though, listen, once we've been reconciled to God, it's not just over. Now that we, through Jesus Christ, can come back and be uh, adopted again as God's sons, now we must learn how to live out the function of being a son and daughter of God. That comes with a role in the earth. It comes with a responsibility. It comes with vocation. It comes with calling. So Jesus says in John 14 that we read, he talks about, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Let's start there. If you love me, keep my commandments. Let's be clear. Jesus is not saying, hey, nan, nana, boo-boo, if you can't keep my commandments, I'm taking my toys home. This is what he's saying. Focus on loving me, and you will keep my commandments. If you'll focus on loving me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, here's the good news. And I will ask the Father, and he'll send you a helper. Everybody just pause for a second and think about this. Are you ready? Our job is to decide that we're going to turn our hearts to Jesus and love him. And we're going to seek to obey him. That's part of our role. We have to work through that and get to that place. The moment we do, the good news is Jesus already knows you're going to need a lot of help. If you love me, that doesn't solve it. You're going to need a helper. So I'm going to send you the helper, the Holy Spirit. It is in that context of Jesus giving his disciples the helper, the Holy Spirit, that he says in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. It is by the Holy Spirit that we are no longer left an orphan. This is why in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter's sermon was Jesus, having risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, has received from the Father the promise of the Spirit and has poured out this which you now see and hear. The Holy Spirit was the Father's blessing. The Holy Spirit was the promise of the Father. And the Holy Spirit comes fully loaded to help you walk out all of your identity, your vocation, and your calling to be an extension of his presence, to be an ex uh, uh, expression of his person, and to exhibit his power. The Holy Spirit comes there with that in mind. But he has to deal with some things. The Holy Spirit comes, listen, the Holy Spirit is about much more than just power in ministry. The Holy Spirit has come to help mature us as sons and daughters of God. So again, I just want you to hear this. I need to just say it really clearly. It's very important that you understand that the call to be a son of God, the phrase son of God, again, is not just descriptive of, some, uh, of a parental kind of relationship, though that is true. It came with a vocation or a calling or a function. Okay? So just keep that in mind as we move forward. God now has to mature us. You know, what's interesting, when Jesus is baptized, and you remember the Holy Spirit, uh, Spirit descends on like a dove and you hear the voice saying, this is my beloved son of whom I'm well pleased. It was a traditional Jewish practice that you take a man who owned a business and had raised up a son. When the son was finally ready to do business in his father's name, he would take him to the market and he would get the market's attention and he would say, this is my beloved son. 
and whom I'm well pleased. My son has a right to do business in my name. And with that came a signet ring to do business in his father's name. The announcement of Jesus at the baptism is God's way of saying, this is my representative. This is the one. Follow him. But that requires, I hope you see it, it requires that we mature a bit. Everybody all right? I feel like I'm fighting through a bag here, but it's all right. So God, it requires that we mature. So let's just talk about briefly how the Holy Spirit will mature us. And then we can, we're going to be diving into it in depth over the six-week-long class starting Wednesday on the Holy Spirit. Look, first of all, the Holy Spirit has to deal with the preoccupations in all of us for provision and protection. If God gives you more authority and he hasn't dealt with you on the issue of your provision and protection, then you'll only use authority and power that he might give you to secure your own provision and protection first. And that will never represent God. That does not embody the value of the kingdom of God, one of agape love. So he has to deal with the priorities, the preoccupations within us for our own provision and protection. So one of the common ways that you see it, there's a lot of ways, but I'm just going to name a couple, is the Holy Spirit will intentionally lead you into a wilderness. God did it with Israel. Deuteronomy 8 is a great passage. Jesus did it both in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. But oftentimes the Holy Spirit will take you into a wilderness. You know you're in a wilderness experience in two ways. You're in a wilderness experience when, one, God has put you in a place where you can't see where your provision is going to come from. This is what he told Israel in Deuteronomy 8. Listen to the words. I led you into the wilderness, into the desert where there is no food, that I might rain down manna from heaven that your fathers have never seen, so that you will know that I've called you by name. The Holy Spirit will lure you into the desert where you can't. Self-sufficiency is inadequate to provide for you. Not so that you can prove to God something, but God wants to prove to you something. That he will be your provider. And he'll often lure us into places that we don't like and it's extremely painful. In which you can't see how you're going to make ends meet or where things are going to come from. In which he will provide for you so that you will know he's called you by name. Not only that, you know you're in the wilderness when you're disoriented. I mean, it took Israel 40 years to get to a track of land no bigger than the state of Maine. I mean, look, you just turn and go north and get out of it, right? So my point is this. When you're intentionally disoriented and you don't know what to do and you don't know where you're going and you don't have any clarity or vision, you don't know what's next, that's often a great sign the Holy Spirit's led you into a wilderness. And listen, the purpose of that is that you'll learn that you can trust the fire by night and the cloud by day. See, part of our need for provision and protection is fueled by our self-sufficiency and our planning and strategizing. And there's intentional times where the Holy Spirit will lead you into the wilderness where you're disoriented and you don't know where your provision is going to come from. So you have to learn to trust him during the day, step by step, day by day, and his provision for you. What that does is it begins to work out of you internally this preoccupation with provision and protection. Just pause for a minute. Think about all the things Jesus said, like in Luke 12. Don't worry about your life or the wherewithal you're going to be clothed. <laughs> really? I mean, who's that guy? How many parents turn to your children and say, hey, I just want you to know, don't worry about your life. Everybody feels a rub, doesn't it? Don't worry about the wherewithal you're going to be clothed. We rarely have that verse on our refrigerator, don't we? But that's the part. He says that your father knows what you need. So seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, the juxtaposition is don't be preoccupied with your provision and protection. Seek first the kingdom of God. You can't do both. Am I clear? Are we good? Whew. 
They'll say, okay, so that's kind of how the Holy Spirit starts to work. But as the Holy Spirit does that internally, he's trying to drive this thing out of us, which gets us to the issue of the law. The Galatians 4 passage I read, um, Paul talks about how the law was only a, a student from us, uh, a guardian, if you would, to keep us until the Father's time had come, until we would grow up. In other words, here's what I want to point, point out. The law will always make slaves, not sons. Now, I just want you to think about this. You have a person who has the preoccupation, they're, they're fallen humanity, they have the preoccupation of provision and protection, right? That's the kind of the driving things. And then all of a sudden, they find out there's a God that exists, and he may be kind of loving. What begins to happen? People begin to enter into a relationship with God as a means to another end, as securing their provision and protection. Oh, there's a God. Maybe he'll provide and protect me. And then what begins to happen is we want to enter into contractual relationships with God. Tell me what it is you need me to do, God, to get you to provide for me. Tell me is what you need me to do to get you to protect me. These are the kinds of people that, you know, they skip their quiet time and go out and they got a flat tire and they think I should have kept my quiet time. Like God was out there with the switchblades flashing your tires because he saw you didn't pray. What happens is it ends up in a very exchange-based relationship. Slaves work for wages. Sons receive inheritances. It's a vast different way of living. And when we enter into this relationship with God, think about it this way. Um, take, when you try two things you're trying to exchange that are, that are not equal, uh, like money and a car, right? We have a car and we have money. We've got to figure out how much car is worth money and how much uh, cash is worth car. So we go to uh, an old school Kelly Blue Book. Anybody remember the old Kelly Blue Book? We go to Kelly Blue Book. I feel really old all of a sudden. You go to Kelly Blue Book and you find out what, how much the car is worth, how much it, you know, cash it's worth because we're exchanging two things that you spend differently. Correct? What often happens when we step to the scriptures in the mindset of an orphan, the mindset of provision and protection, is we begin to read the Bible like a Kelly Blue Book. Tell me what it is you want from me that I need to give you to get you to protect me. Okay, don't cuss. Got that one. Okay, I need to stop this a little bit. Now listen, here's why this is so bad. No matter what it is you decide, whatever you think God wants from you, and whatever you think you can give him. When you go to exchange with God, at the point of exchange, you honestly believe what you're giving God is equal to what God is giving you. That, my friend, is the basis of all self-righteousness. And it's as filthy rags in the presence of God. It's arrogance to the T to think you have anything that God wants to exchange us. And that if you have something God wants, he couldn't just take it if he wanted it. So he doesn't invite you to come and exchange with him. He invites you to come be his son and daughter in his house and learn his ways. You see, a slave has to work for a wage. A son has the whole father's house at his resource. Okay, well, I need to, that, that, I don't know, I got it off my chest. I feel better, put it that way. Let's end with it. I'm not gonna blame that on God. I just wanted to say it. So let me just end like this. You or start my ending. <laughs> the good news is that the Father's in, in created you with a specific intent. And once we become reestablished through Jesus Christ as a son, the Holy Spirit has been given to not only mature us inwardly, but to also equip us externally. And I believe there is some relationship between, not, I'm not, let me be very clear, I'm not talking about spiritual gifts now, I'm, gonna talk about, I'm talking about authority. There is some relationship between the level of our inner life and maturity and the level of authority we can carry. 
There are times where we just can't, that we, our giftedness can be so far of our character that we're doomed to fail. So the Holy Spirit's doing both at the same time. He's externally gifting us, pulling us into learning how to cooperate with God. I, say, I don't mean just in church ministry. I mean everywhere. This is what I mean. To be a son of God means you to represent God everywhere, in every area of your life. That means then you are sent into your family by God. You are sent into your job by God. You are sent into your school by God. You are sent into your marriage by God. You are sent into your children's lives by God. You've been sent by him to be his representative in that area, to put him on display again. And you can't put him on display if all you know is the rules. You got to know the person. You got to know who he is and what he's like. We don't just represent him by getting him a job done. We represent him by also embodying how he would get the job done. And we have to learn that by the cooperation and work of the Holy Spirit. There's several other ways the Holy Spirit will work in our lives to mature us. He'll arrange relationships with the fivefold, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. He'll arrange relationships like that in your life. He'll bring into your life people that can be mentors or maybe spiritual fathers and mothers that will help you grow up, that will help you watch over your soul, as Hebrews 13 says. There's all kinds of ways in which the Holy Spirit will, will work to mature us, and we'll look at that in the class. What I want you to see is the Holy Spirit is not just here to make you a little crazy. He's not just here to make you a little more powerful. He is the only way that you ever discover how to be fully human by living out the vocation that God has given you as a son and daughter of the living God. This is not about going to heaven when you die. This is about learning now how to cooperate with God as his sons and daughters. Let me just do it this way. Let me just end. Uh, there's plenty more to say, but I, I can just, since we need to kind of come to a conclusion here. Look, um, Jesus told a parable about a farmer who had two sons. One came to him and said, Father, give me my part of the inheritance. I'm gone. And the Bible says he takes everything he has and he leaves. In other words, he's attempting to unsun himself. I no longer want to be in your house. I no longer want to have you shape who I am. I'm gone. And he winds up in a pig pen. And he comes to himself, you see, in a journey to push the father out of his life. He ironically become away from himself. But so he had to come to himself to go home. And he comes to himself and he returns back to the father, and he sees the father looking out upon him. The father's kept his eyes on the hill, and the father runs to him. And you know the story, he celebrates, but there's three things I want to point out. He puts on him a robe, he puts on him a ring, and he puts on him shoes. We may, not, we may miss that if we step back and look at the antiquity of it. In Jesus' day, in Second Temple Judaism, the law required that Israel was benevolent to people who had true handicaps. Uh, there were, so a, any, a handicapped person would wear a robe, would go to the Sanhedrin, present themselves as blind or a leper or something, and they would be given a certain robe. That robe would tell other people who they are, their identity, and therefore whether or not they were a legitimate you know, way of helping them. You remember blind Bartimaeus when Jesus said, uh, called Bartimaeus to him, the blind guy, he, the Bible says he throws off his robe and he runs to Jesus. I mean, think about a blind man running through a crowd is an interesting thought, like a bad Monty Python skit. But the point is, he threw off his identity as a blind man to get to Jesus. My point is this. 
when the Bible says that in the prodigal son, he puts on a robe, the first thing God does is he restores his identity as a son. Then he puts a ring on his finger. Again, a signet ring being a representation of the ability to represent the father in matters concerning his own business. It's a restoration of authority. And then he puts sandals on his feet because he has a place to go. It's the restoration of destiny. The gospel is not that you can just get to heaven when you die. The gospel is there is a father who refused to abandon you. He stepped into the suffering of the world and he suffered himself in the person Jesus Christ that he might restore you to the father as his son and daughter. And now he desires that you not just live in some intimate relationship with him, that, that we have to live from that. What I'm, I'm not trying to make light of that. I'm just trying to say there also is then a function and a calling that that comes with. But we have to allow God to love us by shaping our identity. We have to learn how to walk in his authority. And we have to realize that God has given us a destiny. To go deeper means we begin to see that God has sent us or he's called us to represent him in all areas of our life and starting to learn to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to see his kingdom come and his will be done in every area of our life. Would you stand with me? The GP2RL for today is we're just encouraging to dive deeper by uh, attending uh, the Holy Spirit class starting this Wednesday at 7 o'clock. It'll also be on Facebook Live. You can register by going to the Facebook event and hitting the 10. Let us know you're coming. But I just want to encourage you. We're going to try to dive into depth and different roles the Holy Spirit plays in our life and how we can uh, uh, cooperate with them. I just want to pause, and I just want to say this right now as we, as we go. There are people here that have been in the wilderness, and you've been thinking God's mad at you, and I just want you to know God's maturing you, and you don't even know it. You thought he abandoned you. He's teaching you. And he teaches the sons that he loves because they're legitimate. And he does it because Hebrews 12 says he wants you to be a partaker of his holiness. He disciplines you because he has a vision for your life. Intimately involved in it. There are people here who are trying to figure out what life looks like next. And I want to just say, instead of trying to plan it all in detail, pause for a moment and let the Lord lift your eyes. And ask him to take you deeper in what it means to be his son and daughter. To be sent by him see what he might say. Holy Spirit, as we worship, as we celebrate how good of a father we have, Holy Spirit, I ask you to go deep in us, to do a work in us, to be a people that will live sent. Keep us from elitism, legalism, all the ways it can go wrong. And just teach us how to love you well represent you to a world who so badly needs a glimpse of the kind of God you really are. I thank you for this. In Jesus' name.